Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Sometimes when we talk about the history of philosophy in the Islamic world, the narrative presented is that it starts with Al-Kindi in the 9th century and ends with the Andalusian figure Ibn Rushd, known in the West as Averroes or Averroes. This understanding is based on rather narrow understanding of philosophy and a selective misreading of later developments in the region. But we can still say that Ibn Rushd represents a very important moment in the history of Islamic philosophy and its development. He was a radical rationalist, one who championed the philosophy of Aristotle to such a degree that he considered some of his predecessors, like Ibn Sina and Al-Farabi, to be irrational Neoplatonists. His life and thought is fascinating, from his relationship to different rulers, to his role as a judge in Islamic law, and his very entertaining intellectual beef with Al-Ghazali, it all adds up to a very interesting figure that is worth studying and admiring. Ibn Rushd was a Muslim polymath who mastered a number of different fields. He wrote over a hundred books on such varied topics as theology, physics, metaphysics, linguistics, medicine, astronomy, and law, just to mention a few. He was born in Cordoba in modern Spain in the year 1126, and his full name was Abul Walid Muhammad ibn Ahmad ibn Rushd. Al-Andalus, as it was known, was at the time ruled by the Muslim Al-Murabid dynasty, a group of Berber Muslim leaders who had taken over after the crumbling of the Umayyad Caliphate in the region. 
the Almoravids and their successor, the Almohads, who would take over soon thereafter in 1150, were both pretty strict and puritanical in their understanding and implementation of Islamic law and practice, but the region still flourished in terms of intellectual development and activity. Ibn Rushd came from a family of renowned scholars and jurists of the Maliki school of law, which was the predominant school in that region at the time, and he would himself follow in their footsteps as just one aspect of his varied intellectual life. He seems to have received a wide education in both the religious sciences, being taught by some of his family members and their friends, as well as being highly educated and learned in the philosophical and scientific uh, subjects as well. One story tells of how he traveled to Marrakesh as a young man to do some astronomical calculations. Now, Marrakesh at the time was the seat of power for the Almohad dynasty, which would soon thereafter rule much of North Africa and basically all of Andalusia. The Almohads had very quickly appeared after its founding by Ibn Tumart, a Berber revolutionary, and managed to overthrow the previously ruling Almoravid dynasty, which we mentioned. The situation with the Almohads is quite complex. It is true that they were very puritanical and strict in their understanding and implementation of the Sharia, Islamic law, as well as on certain theological questions. But at the same time, the founder Ibn Tumart and his followers also affirmed that rationality was an important and legitimate sort of way to understand religion in a general sense. So here, the Almohads actually kind of... Um, question some of our often preconceived notions about how these things should work. A rational attitude is often associated with a more liberal kind of social approach, but this was not the case here. So as a result of this, under the Almohads, some of the Falsafa philosophers received patronage from the rulers and would come to have high status and positions in the court and in society, as would also be the case here with Ibn Rushd. It is said that on this trip to Marrakesh, Ibn Rushd ran into the great philosopher Ibn Tufayl, writer of the famous novel Hay Ibn Yaqsan. Ibn Tufayl was also at the time the court physician to the ruling Almohad Caliph Abu Yaqub Yusuf. The stories differ here, but it is said that it was Ibn Tufayl who actually introduced the Caliph to Ibn Rushd, perhaps recognizing his great intellectual capabilities. In one story, Ibn Rushd is brought before the caliph Abu Yaqub Yusuf and Ibn Tufayl. The caliph then asks Ibn Rushd about the heavens and the eternity of the universe, which was quite a controversial and hot topic at the time. So Ibn Rushd gave a very kind of safe cop-out answer to not sort of get in trouble, basically. Um, but following this, the caliph then turned to Ibn Tufayl, his physician, and they started discussing the matter in depth, which showed Ibn Rushd that the caliph was not only interested in philosophical speculation, but actually quite educated and intelligent himself. And this gave Ibn Rushd the courage to jump into the conversation and really show off what he knew and the, the knowledge that he had, and this seems to have very much impressed the caliph and Ibn Tufayl. And this could be seen then as the start of Ibn Rushd's very privileged career. He would continue to study the different philosophical sciences, as well as becoming prominent in Islamic law. As He became a qadi, a judge, and was eventually appointed the chief judge in Cordoba. 
And this is important to keep in mind, as many later commentators in Europe have argued that Ibn Rushd's commitment to Islam as a religion must have been only on a kind of surface level and that he didn't really believe in it, so to say. But when we study his life, we can see that he was deeply committed to the religion of Islam, its laws, and its practices. Just because you have a biased view of Islam as being irrational and can't imagine a rationalist like Ibn Rushd being a devout Muslim doesn't make it true. Once Ibn Tufayl retired in 1182, Ibn Rushd also took over his position as the court physician to the caliph Abu Yaqub Yusuf, as well as to his successor Abu Yusuf Yaqub, another very creative name. Now, throughout his career, Ibn Rushd would write a huge amount of works about all kinds of different topics relating to what we refer to as science today, philosophy, religion, law, and so on. He can very much be called a polymath and was undoubtedly a genius in many ways. In his philosophical thought, he was particularly a strong follower of Aristotle and wanted to revive what he thought was a true Aristotelian philosophy. He wrote, quote, I believe that this man, Aristotle, was a model in nature and the exemplar which nature found for showing final human perfection. Very high praise, obviously. Now, basically all Muslim philosophers liked Aristotle and saw themselves as being followers of Aristotle. There are some exceptions like Ibn Sama'in or Surawardi who would, in, in their writings, become quite critical of that approach. But generally, all Muslim philosophers saw themselves in some way as primarily followers of Aristotle. But at the same time, most of them were also very highly influenced by Platonism and Neoplatonism in particular. In the medieval Islamic world, there were rarely a distinction drawn between the teachings of Plato and Aristotle, and so there was often a kind of synthesis between the two. For example, one of the main sources for Greek philosophy in the early Islamic world that was translated into Arabic from Greek was a, a treatise called The Theology of Aristotle, which became incredibly influential and, and, and used throughout the Islamic world. Now, today we know that the theology of Aristotle is actually a section from the Enneads by Plotinus, who was the founder of Neoplatonism. So unknowingly, many of the Islamic philosophers confused what they thought was Aristotle's teachings with what was actually Plotinus. And so the later teachings, of course, inevitably enters and became very important and influential to the writings and ideas of much of the Islamic philosophers generally. And it's thus present in the thought of philosophers like Ibn Sina and Al-Farabi. Ibn Rushd was very much aware of this and was critical of it. He was particularly skeptical of Ibn Sina and his followers, who, whose revolutionary ideas had an enormous impact in the Islamic intellectual world, as he believed that the great Persian philosopher had soiled the pure rationalism of Aristotle with Neoplatonist ideas. Instead, he wanted to return philosophy to an earlier state, to a time before Ibn Sina, and to the earliest philosophers in Baghdad, and even further back to Aristotle himself, essentially. Thus, Ibn Rushd wrote a huge amount of commentaries on the works of Aristotle, often divided into three kinds, short commentaries, middle commentaries, and long commentaries, the latter of which was a line-by-line in-depth commentary on the works of Aristotle and all of his different books. And this huge amount of an incredibly in-depth commentary on Aristotle earned him the simple but very telling name, The Commentator, by later Western thinkers primarily. 
Aristotle himself had been known simply as the philosopher in the Islamic world, and Ibn Rushd being given the title the commentator says a lot about his status and his relationship to Aristotle. The second important thing and aspect of Ibn Rushd's ideas and thought is the relationship between philosophy and religion. Ibn Rushd, being a philosopher and strong rationalist as well as a devout Muslim, spends much of his writing very strongly arguing not only for the compatibility between religion and philosophy, but to their essential interconnectedness. Not only did Ibn Rushd consider philosophy to be permitted, that is halal in Arabic, he even considered it, based on Quranic verses, to be obligatory for everyone who had the ability to study it. He believed that the Quran asks its readers to investigate and ask questions about creation. These questions are discussed throughout his corpus of works, but primarily in two very famous texts. One of them is a direct response to the great theologian and Sufi al-Ghazali. He wrote a very influential work called Tahafut al-Falasifa, or The Incoherence of the Philosophers, in which he strongly attacks the philosophers and some of their ideas, in particular Ibn Sina and al-Farabi. He considers a lot of their philosophy to be completely incompatible with Islamic orthodoxy. Now, Ibn Rushd, who writes a few decades later, wouldn't have any of this. So he wrote a direct response to al-Ghazali's incoherence of the philosophers called the Tahafut at-Tahafut, the incoherence of the incoherence, in which he attacks al-Ghazali's claims and defends philosophy. I've always loved this back and forth between these two. It's like a medieval rap feud or something. It's just, I just love it. But nonetheless, in this important work, he very much strongly and seriously defends philosophy and attacks al-Ghazali on a number of points, and one of them by actually agreeing with him. As the bulk of al-Ghazali's critique is aimed at the philosopher Ibn Sina, Ibn Rushd could do nothing but agree. He also was critical of Ibn Sina, but instead he asks al-Ghazali to not judge or, or, or deem all philosophy to be wrong just because one person had the wrong ideas, just like you wouldn't say that all of fiqh or jurisprudence is misguided just because one single jurist had some iffy ideas. Another way that he criticizes al-Ghazali is an aspect that is central to his general ideas, and that is the dividing arguments and statements into demonstrative statements and dialectical or rhetorical statements. To him, that is Ibn Rushd, the only way to know truth definitively is through demonstrative proof. A demonstrative statement could be a syllogism based on a premise that is immediately true. So, for example, if A equals B and C equals C, that must necessarily mean that A equals C. Much of modern science is based on this kind of reasoning, that is truth derived from demonstrated evidence or reasoning. A simply rhetorical statement, however, can potentially be true, but is not true per se. It is not immediately true in itself. So if I say the earth revolves around the sun, that isn't truth in itself. The statement itself doesn't prove that what I'm saying is true, even if it is true in this case. Anyway, to put it simply, Ibn Rushd believed that it was the philosopher's job to only work with demonstrated proofs and truths and not simply rhetorical ones, which he criticized the Kalam scholars and al-Ghazali as doing. And he applies these general ideas into his ideas about the relationship between religion and philosophy generally too. 
Much like other philosophers like Al-Kindi and Al-Farabi, Ibn Rushd believes that the truths that we can derive from reasoning or through scientific demonstration is essentially the same truth that is expressed in religion. He has sometimes been attributed with the idea of a double truth, that is, that there is one truth for religion and another truth for philosophy and science, but this is not actually accurate. He believed that the truth that can be reached through reason and demonstration is essentially the same exact truth that is expressed in Revelation, in the Quran. And again, like the other philosophers, he argues that these two only use different languages to express the same thing. The philosophical language is meant for the philosophers who can grasp these abstract concepts, whereas the language of Revelation and the Quran is a rhetorical one of symbols and metaphors that expresses the same truths but to the wider masses. Quote, the natures of men are on different levels with respect to ascent. One of them comes to ascent through demonstration, another comes to ascent through dialectical arguments, just as firmly as the demonstrative man through demonstration. And perhaps an even clearer example from his own writings, quote, The religions are, according to the philosophers, obligatory, since they lead towards wisdom in a way universal to all human beings. For philosophy only leads a certain number of intelligent people to the knowledge of happiness, and they therefore have to learn wisdom, whereas religions seek the instruction of the masses generally. Now, this isn't all that original, as many other philosophers have expressed basically identical ideas, but Ibn Rushd is especially radical in his rationalism, and in fact, to him, rational and demonstrated proofs always take precedence over religious expression. Quote, we affirm definitely that whenever the conclusion of a demonstration is in conflict with the apparent meaning of scripture or Islamic law, that apparent meaning admits of allegorical interpretation according to the rules for such interpretation in Arabic. This proposition is questioned by no Muslim and doubted by no believer. In other words, if we find anything in, say, the Quran that goes against what we know about the world through demonstration, either philosophical or, to extend the idea, scientific, those verses have to be understood allegorically or metaphorically. Now, this may be seen as radical by some people, but it fits perfectly well into his larger philosophical thought. And this also allows him to defend the philosophers further from attacks by al-Ghazali. He points out three main points that the philosophers express that are completely incompatible with Islamic orthodoxy and by which he calls them unbelievers. And these are, number one, the the idea of the eternity of the world as opposed to creation at a specific moment. Um, secondly, the idea that God only knows universals and not particulars. And lastly, the rejection of bodily resurrection. Ibn Rushd's rationalistic approach allows him to acquit the philosophers of these charges. In his understanding of scripture, there are three types of texts or verses. One kind that must always be read literally, a second kind which the philosophers may interpret allegorically, and a third kind in which there is disagreement. He believed that the questions discussed by al-Ghazali belong to the third category, where there is disagreement. And on the basis of this, he argues that, uh, for example, the question of bodily resurrection, as long as the person in question doesn't reject the existence of the resurrection completely, it is not justified to call him a kafir or unbeliever. 
So a scholar can interpret the resurrection allegorically or metaphorically, but still affirm that there is a certain reality to the resurrection, even if it is to be understood allegorically and however it should be interpreted, and thus he is not an unbeliever, since he doesn't neglect its existence altogether. So Ibn Rushd allows for an openness of interpretation and speculation as long as it is within the bounds of the Quranic statements. But Ibn Rushd nonetheless ends up affirming many of the points that the previous philosophers had. For example, he very strongly argues for the eternity of the world instead of it being created ex nihilo. He believes in the creation of the world by God, but that this doesn't take place within time. In the words of scholar Richard C. Taylor, quote, God is the creator of the universe insofar as he draws it from potentiality into the actuality of existence and also conserves it. Such is the case without entailing a temporal origination of the world and a starting moment of time. In an interesting twist, Ibn Rushd then attacks those who actually believe in creation from nothing at a specific point in time and accuses them of reading things metaphorically and allegorically and not reading the Quran literally. Quote, in their statements about the world, they do not conform to the apparent meaning of scripture, but interpret it allegorically. For it is not stated in the scripture that God was existing with absolutely nothing else. A text to this effect is nowhere to be found. He also, in some of his writings, seemed to deny bodily resurrection, just like many of the other philosophers seems to have done. But in some places, he even seems to deny any form of afterlife for the human being at all, which would seem rather strange. But I believe this is a point of debate, and I don't feel comfortable enough to make any definitive statements about it, so take that with a bit of a grain of salt. The second significant work that Ibn Rushd wrote on the relationship between religion and philosophy is the rather short treatise called Fasl al-Maqal fi Mabayn al-Hikmah wal-Sharia min Ittisal, which literally translates to something like determining the nature of the connection between wisdom or philosophy and religion or literally religious law. But sometimes referred to as On the Harmony of Religions and Philosophy or simply as The Decisive Treatise. In this treatise, he discusses much of what we have already talked about, arguing for the essential connectedness and, and uh, complementary relationship between religion and philosophy or science. These are the things that Ibn Rushd is primarily remembered for. He served as chief judge uh, of Islamic Maliki law in Cordoba and wrote his masterful philosophical treatises under the patronage of some of the Almohad caliphs. But there was a period in 1195 when his luck suddenly turned. Um, he was tried in Cordoba and his teachings were condemned suddenly by the caliph. He was forced to flee the country, go to North Africa, and some of his books were even burned. Many people have speculated about the reason for this very sudden change in attitude towards Ibn Rushd, but most scholars argue that the reasons were most likely political, as they almost always are. Fortunately, though, this condemnation was only temporary, and only a year or two later Ibn Rushd returned to the court in Marrakesh. He was sort of forgiven by the caliph and continued to be friends with the sitting Almohad caliph for the rest of his life. Ibn Rushd died on December 11th, 1198, and was buried in his hometown of Cordoba in modern Spain. He left behind a huge corpus of writings and treatises, not all of which have been discussed. We have only discussed a very short, or small amount of his vast corpus. He also very famously talked about the role of women in society and wrote a commentary on Plato's very famous The Republic. In this commentary on Plato, he very famously expresses his 
a disdain for the role of women in society, complaining about their being confined to the home and arguing that women should play a much more prominent role in society at the time. Quote, our society allows no scope for the development of women's talents. They seem to be destined exclusively to childbirth and the care of children, and this state of servility has destroyed their capacity for larger matters. It is thus that we see no women endowed with moral virtues. They live their lives like vegetables, devoting themselves to their husbands. From this stems the misery that pervades our cities, for women outnumber men by more than double and cannot procure the necessities of life by their own labors. Another quote, women in this state are twice in numbers as men, and they are kept from working except rarely in an appropriate labor, and this restricted rarity, such as sewing or embroidery, is barely sufficient to help them survive. He argues that women are actually equal in quality to men in many respects. They are just as capable of performing tasks and professions, and he argues that women should get out and participate more in society by working or engaging themselves in social life. In fact, this would only benefit society and particularly the economics of the state as there are more women than men, as he clearly stated. Quote, they, that is women, are equal with men in quality and differ only in levels. If this means that man is more efficient than woman in most of his actions, however, it is not impossible that women perform some activities with higher efficiency, such as practical music. This is why it is said that melodies are complete if men have composed them and women have performed them. He argues that women are fully capable of being philosophers and hold great wisdom. He also even seems to imply that women are fully capable of ruling the state in a p political sense, but also at the same time he seems to be kind of skeptical of this idea based on Islamic law. All of this comes from his commentary on Plato's The Republic, and many of these ideas are of course shared and comes from Plato in a lot of ways, but Ibn Rushd definitely agrees with these points and actually adds certain ideas and certain perspectives to it. And in this respect, very interestingly, he very clearly goes against his hero Aristotle, who himself was a lot more hostile towards women than Plato was. This praising of women and his call for their sort of larger participation in society has led some people to call Ibn Rushd a proto-feminist. As I always say, it is problematic to ascribe labels like this to people who lived in a completely different context, but these ideas of Ibn Rushd can certainly be seen as rather modern and progressive for his time. But to him, this was completely in line with his understanding of Islam and its religious law, based on his position also as a judge and jurist of Maliki Islamic law. Now, what is very interesting about Ibn Rushd is that he is certainly one of the most important and influential philosophers in history, but at the same time, basically none of that influence can be seen or felt in the Islamic world. He was, of course, greatly respected and admired during his lifetime, but after he died, his writings had no lasting or, to any large degree, any impact on the Islamic philosophical tradition. It is only in the last century or so that his ideas have been revived in the Islamic world as a kind of um, champion of rationality and a sort of rational approach to Islam. Instead, it is actually in Europe that Ibn Rushd has been the most influential, and not just a little bit. He was one of the most significant sources for many of the medieval Christian and Jewish writers on philosophy in general. 
In a way, it can be argued that it is Ibn Rushd who hands over the philosophical intellectual tradition which had flourished in the Islamic world in the preceding centuries to the European Christians and Jews. The Christian scholastic traditions owe a whole lot to this man. Thomas Aquinas, Maimonides, Albert the Great, Meister Eckhart, they all read Ibn Rushd. It is even said that whenever any of the great scholastic theologians and philosophers would study the writings of Aristotle, they would always do so with a copy of Ibn Rushd's commentaries next to it. As I mentioned, he was given the title The Commentator for this very reason. He has even been called the father of rationality, which is of course rather strange, but it shows you how important he has been to the development of, of philosophy and the intellectual tradition in, uh, in Europe especially. Many argue that it is in large part because of Ibn Rushd's influence that we are where we are today uh, intellectually in, in the West, uh, so to say. And thus he can be said to have had a massive influence on the world that we live in today. But as I said, his ideas remained largely ignored in his own region, in his own religion of Islam and in Islamic philosophy. Um, his predecessor Ibn Sina and other of his contemporaries like Ibn Arabi, the Sufis, had a much larger impact and influence in this region. Uh, but I think still he can be considered one of the most important and significant Islamic philosophers in history, um, even though he wasn't as influential and as some of those other people. So Ibn Rushd, or Averroes, or Averroes as he is known in the West, is an incredibly important thinker, he's one of the most significant philosophers in the Islamic world, and one who has had a massive impact on European scholasticism, and thus also, as I said, generally on the intellectual tradition of the world and of Europe generally. I hope this was interesting and informative for you. I'll see you next time. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.